Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the black panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. But we still here, in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. Show. They got me started, lying hearted. I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black home, black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns, that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Mm-hmm. Greetings. 
And thank you so much to all of you for being with us today. Welcome to day two of the Symposium on Reparations under International Law for Enslavement of African Persons in the Americas and the Caribbean, sponsored by the University of the West Indies and the American Society of International Law and facilitated by the UE Center for Reparation Research and Basel, the Blacks of the American Society of International Law. I'm Chantal Thomas. I'm a co-chair of the Symposium Organizing Committee alongside my co-chair, Natalie Reed. And I wish to thank once again the sponsors for this event, and especially Judge Patrick Robinson, ASIL President Catherine Amerfar, and Vice Chancellor Professor Sir Hilary Beckles of the UE for making this event possible. We look forward to a wonderful set of discussions today, beginning with the current panel on global and comparative perspectives on reparations. It's my pleasure to introduce Professor Charles Jallo of Florida International University College of Law, who will moderate the panel and introduce our highly distinguished speakers. Professor Jallo, I turn it over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Thomas, uh, Excellencies, uh, distinguished uh, colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good afternoon, uh, good evening, and perhaps even good morning depending on where you are. Uh, my name is Charles Jallo, and as uh, Professor Thomas just said, I'm a professor of law at Florida International uh, University in Miami. I am deeply honored to have been invited by the University of West Indies and the American Society of International Law, as well as all the facilitators of this event, to moderate this important panel discussion on global and comparative perspectives on reparations. The overarching theme, Professor of Law at Florida International. The overarching theme of what was yesterday rightly described as an historic symposium, reparations under international law for enslavement of African persons in the Americas and the Caribbean, is an important and timely one. It is to me quite significant that this topic, which, like the twin evils of slavery and colonialism, that languished in the peripheries of international law discussions and debates is increasingly being moved from the periphery to the center of international law discussions. While there has been much scholarship on reparations over the years, this symposium should help enrich that body of work and to shine a well-deserved spotlight on it. It is without a doubt worth noting that the Center for Reparation Research at the University of West Indies together with the Blacks in the American Society of International Law, one of the most well-known and respected professional bodies of international law, have joined forces to put together what has so far been a truly fantastic and thought-provoking symposium. Needless to say, without the leadership and support of Judge Patrick Robinson, Honorary ASIL President and Judge of the International Court of Justice, and the President of the American Society, Ms. Catherine Amafar, this symposium would simply have not, would not have been possible. I wish to therefore take this opportunity to extend my collective, uh, our collective gratitude to them for putting together a really stimulating uh, conversation, which I followed very closely like many of you uh, yesterday. Allow me to now turn to the business at hand. The theme of the panel that I've been asked to moderate is global and comparative perspectives on reparations. 
we have two very distinguished speakers who will address the topic from two complementary perspectives. The first of them is Mr. Umberto Adami, who will be followed by Mr. Claudio Grossman. I will introduce them to you as they speak. Later on, we'll get a chance to engage in a Q&A, so I invite you to start thinking about and writing down your questions. I have strict marching orders that the speakers are to get 15 minutes each for their remarks and to reserve the second half of the panel for our exchange of views, including with the audience. So allow me to now start with an introduction of the first of our distinguished speakers, Mr. Umberto Adami. Mr. Adami has a long list of impressive professional accomplishments. So I must apologize in advance that I'm not here able to do justice to it since I would limit myself to highlighting a select set of things from his professional background. He is currently the president of the National Truth Commission of Black Slavery of the Federal Council of the Brazilian Bar Association and president of the State Commission for the Truth of Black Slavery of the section of OAB. He has chaired the IAB Racial Equality Commission and is the former vice president of the National Commission of Racial Equality of the Federal Council of the Brazilian Bar Association since January 2014 and a member of the National Commission of Environmental Law of the Federal Council. He is a lawyer specializing in actions to combat racism before the Supreme Court of Brazil and is a partner of Adami Advogados Associados. He is also a member of the Board of Superior and Professor at Zumbi del Palmeiras University since 2011. In terms of education, he holds a bachelor's degree in law from the University of Brasilia and a master's degree in law from the State University of Rio de Janeiro. Mr. Adami will speak to the topic, Reparations for Transatlantic Shuttle Slavery in Brazil. Mr. Adami, you have the floor and the next 15 minutes for your remarks, sir. Thank you, Professor Charles Jalop. Uh, pleasure and pleasure and pleasure to be in this meeting with uh, Professor Claude Grossman. I would like to thank you to uh, uh, American Society of International Law and the University of West Indies. Uh, it was a very important, uh, uh, very important uh, uh, meeting, and I, I'm looking, watching since uh, the, the yesterday, and it was very, very, uh, very important. And. Uh, I saw yesterday Mr. Jude Hobson, Jude Hobson, and uh, was saying just in a few moments that he looks like a, a hero of the Brazilian reparation, black reparation is uh, Mr. Iedo Ferreira, that is a griot about uh, the fight for black reparation. And I was very happy to see yesterday my very good friend, uh, uh, Gay McDougall, that uh, stay, came to Brazil in 2005, and after having a connection with uh, the Amicus Curia of uh, Michigan University lawsuits, that was very important with Ted Shaw, and they came here with, uh, in a connection of, about, uh, of Fonda, Ford Foundation, and we have a lot uh, of uh, very many connections here, and uh, it was very, 
very important to to see, see saw him here yesterday. Uh, I, I I would I want to say that uh, in Brazil we don't have this this uh, there's no meaning about uh, the chateau slavery that you, all people are saying here. We talk about back slavery and. Uh, we can understand everything about slavery and black slavery. So I, I want to uh, talk about uh, the chateau slavery meaning. Uh, I say uh, it was said that the Black Slavery Truth Commission of the Bar Association, the Brazilian Bar Association, I mean, the third time that uh, uh, we have uh, in the presence of this this, this uh, institution, and also of the Brazilian Lawyers Association with the Racial Equality Commission. We have 18 state chapters and a lot of uh, municipality commissions, which have a lot of linking, working, uh, and the reparation fights around Brazil. Brazil, we have, in Brazil, we have 27 states, and it's, it's so large. Uh, so this possibility of uh, rescuing the heroes of the fights of the Brazilian, uh, the, the black people in Brazil is a lot, uh, it's very, very important because in Brazil, they they make uh, they 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 make uh, something that forget forgot all the Brazilian fights, uh, the Brazilian black fights, and the Brazilian black heroes, and the Brazilian that uh, helped to make the, the the country, and the Brazilian black people were forgotten. So. Talk about reparation in this, in this point of the, 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 the conversation is asking about the completely uh, forgetness, uh, those heroes. Um, I, I was also looking, watching yesterday, Dr. Hilary Backless, uh, that makes some very uh, very similar, similar, similar uh, speech with Elio, Professor Elio Santos in Brazil. In many, many, many times I saw Elio Santos and uh, Professor, Professor Elio Santos and Professor Hilary Bacos uh, talking the same thing. And uh, I think that's a, 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 a reparation, a black reparation points that, uh, that we can identify is the same thing uh, talked in many places uh, for in different language, but it's the same thing that are being uh, said. Uh, the heroes that the Black, Black Truth Commission uh, has with, with very good results, and probably it will be this, the first time that uh, many people that are watching us will heard 
uh, Sir Luis Gama, which was a, a lawyer at the, that fights uh, for the fights for the liberation of black people in Brazil. Uh, also, Esperança Garcia, uh, who was a, a woman that uh, made a very important letter talking about uh, uh, freedom uh, in, in, the, in Piauí. And also, nowadays, we talk about Manuel Congo and Mariana Criola. Probably it's, uh, it is the first time that uh, many of you uh, hear about those heroes of the fight of the freedom in Brazil. But it's, uh, it's important to say, to remember, and to tell uh, about this. Uh, we have in Brazil 5,753 5, municipalities. So uh, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, in Brazil. So it's uh, a lot of history, uh, places, and uh, to rescue from the complete uh, forgotteness. And uh, just uh, sometimes, uh, some time ago, very recently, we have uh, the Supreme Brazilian Supreme Court talking about police lethality. Uh, and uh, in an important lawsuit uh, that is going on in Supreme Court, and uh, police in Brazil kills uh, a lot of special the young black Brazilians. Uh, also, we have uh, for two times the Brazilian Supreme Court talking and uh, uh, regulating about uh, affirmative action with quota system. When, and, uh, and also a, a university and public job, uh, public examinations admission. And this was uh, what, I, what we can uh, consider like revolution. Uh, all of, even in, in Brazilian bar associations, last November, uh, the Federal Council uh, of the Bar Association ruled that in the next election, uh, elections, uh, in the next November, we will have a 50% uh, code for women in the, in the elections, and also 30% of black people, male and female, in the, in the election, which uh, make me feel that the Bar Association in whole Brazil will never be the next. It is a real revolution. Uh, and also, I would like to talk about uh, uh, reparation, transistor justice, and uh, also uh, we made just two weeks ago uh, a very important webinar international with uh, uh, a lady of Namibia, 
and that she talked the importance of uh, slavery uh, reparation uh, with the Federal Bar Association. We made some uh, one year ago uh, with the University of Pennsylvania uh, a, a very important seminar. We, we received five, 15 students of the University of Pennsylvania talking about uh, preparation uh, in, in, in Brazil and the United States and talking about this lawsuit of Namibia against uh, Germany, which happened in, uh, in a court of New York. It's very, very interesting, and we are watching very uh, hardly uh, this way. Well, I think that, uh, I don't know about the time. We have time, Professor Charles, we, have, we still have time. All right, so uh, we, I, 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 ah, there's a, a very important uh, thing with the Brazilian Lawyers Institute, we made a, a very important document that, that says about the juridical aspects of the uh, reparation of the slavery, the slavery reparation. And uh, this document is on the site of the institute with about uh, 80, 80 page and we treated all about uh, repara reparation, slavery reparation in, the, in Brazil and also the world because lots of people talk about reparation but then when you are going to ask for reparation, write for reparation, it is still difficult and it's a very hard subject. Uh, and I always finish uh, say in Brazil what I say uh, let's make it's the first time that I say it in English but uh, let's make the ground of this earth tremble so in Brazil we say vamos fazer tremer o chão dessa terra so in English let's make the ground of this earth tremble that's what I, I invite everybody to do, and thank you very much for uh, hearing me. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Uh, Adami, uh, for your very thought-provoking uh, remarks on the situation of reparations for uh, transatlantic shuttle uh, slavery in Brazil. I took careful note of your point about the language that we used yesterday in the panel. So it was very interesting even comparative point. I'll be coming back to you uh, in due course with the questions. I now have the pleasure um, of uh, moving to the second distinguished speaker for our panel uh, today. Uh, although uh, Claudio Grossman uh, does not, in some respects, need an introduction. I do wish to say a few things about him, even though, like the case uh, for the previous speaker, I will not be able to do justice to his extensive uh, professional accomplishments. Uh, professor Claudio Grossman is a professor of law 
uh, Dean Emeritus and the Raymond Geraldson Scholar for International and Humanitarian Law at the AU Washington College of Law, where he served as Dean from 1995 to 2016. Claudio, I say Claudio, a colleague of mine, is a member of the United Nations International Law Commission and was chair of its drafting committee in 2019. In 2019, he was also elected to the L'Institut de Droit International and appointed to its Commission on Epidemics and International Law. Since 2014, uh, Professor Grossman has, uh, uh, had served as the president of the Inter-American Institute of Human Rights, and he served as a member and chairperson of the UN Committee Against Torture and as chair of the UN Human Rights Treaty Body. From 1993 to 2001, he served on the Inter-American Commission for Human Rights and was twice elected as that body's president. He also served as the uh, Commission Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Women and Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Populations. He has participated in landmark human rights cases, more or less through all the universal and inter-American and regional systems. He is the author of numerous publications concerning international law, the law of international organizations, human rights, and international education. He is the 2020 recipient of the Gola T. Butcher Medal, awarded by the American Society of International Law to a distinguished person for outstanding contributions to the development or effective realization of international human rights law. His proposal on reparations to individuals for violations of human rights and humanitarian law was approved by the ILC for addition to its long-term work program in 2018. With that background in mind and keeping his uh, scholarly contributions on the subject also in mind, I do not think we can have a better speaker for his intervention on the topic, Remedies for Gross Breaches of International Law, with particular attention to transatlantic chattel slavery. I now give the floor uh, to Claudio, my friend and colleague. You have 15 minutes, sir. Well, many thanks uh, for your introduction. I'm honored to have been invited to talk at this important conference of the American Society, sponsored by the American Society of International Law and the University of West Indies. I am also honored to be in this panel with Umberto Adami and with you, with Professor Charles Jallo. Uh, I recognize also and value tremendously the intellectual and moral leadership of Judge Patrick Robinson. We would not be here without him had it not been by him. I will analyze first the development of the law of reparation concerning obligations to individuals under international law. Then I will turn to current mechanisms and practices for implementing reparation owed to individuals. And I will mention also obligations owed to states. I will consider whether international law provides a framework for addressing the arms of enslavement and the slave trade. Traditionally, international law was exclusively defined as law applicable to the relations between states. Individuals increasingly gained the ability to bring international claims in national courts. In 1928, the Permanent Court of International Justice, in the case concerning jurisdiction of the courts of Danzig, declared that individuals may have the right to bring international claims to national courts. As a result of the horrors of the Second World War, a common framework began to develop regarding the concepts of human dignity and individual rights. 
creating rights international at the international level, including the right to reparations. It's important to know, however, that even in 1926, the international community had reacted against slavery with the adoption of the Slavery Convention. And after World War II, the international community again decried enslavement and condemned it through the proclamation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the adoption of the Supplementary Convention on the Abolition of Slavery and the Slave Trade and Institutions and Black and practices similar to slavery in 1956. The Rome Statue also incorporated slavery as an element of the definition of crimes against humanity. One of the most relevant developments to a concept of reparation is the adoption by the General Assembly of the UN of the basic principles and guidelines on the right to a remedy and reparation for victims of gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law, the basic principle, adopted in 2005. Almost all the universal and regional conventions established the right to uh, the reparation and the ability to individuals to act when states have accepted that possibility. Reparation under international law also have been studied through the work of the International Law Commission. For the purposes of reparation, the topics of diplomatic protection and state responsibility are of particular relevance. The International Court of Justice in the Ahmadou Sadio Dialogue case stressed the interconnection between the rights of the individual and the concept of diplomatic protection, providing reparation for that the, it needed to, uh, it was important to consider the reparation for the injury suffered by Mr. Dialogue in breach of international law. The ILC, in the, in the early work on the Articles of State Responsibility that laid down norms concerning reparations to state for wrongful acts and recognized the importance of reparation, established norms as a pending work the need uh, to continue with reparations to individuals. On the basis, because the, uh, the, the Articles of State Responsibility detailing particularly the issue of wrongful acts owed to states, other states of the international uh, community, and identify restitution, compensation, satisfaction, either singly or in combination. On, uh, uh, following the, 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 his, the, the spirit of the Article of State Responsibility, they presented a proposal adopted by International Law Commission to uh, this time uh, undertake the job of uh, codification a progressive development of reparation to individuals. Now, what uh, concerning now the exercise of the right to reparation, it's possible to do that both at the international and national level. At the international level, we have all the plethora of uh, norms uh, in the universal and regional established, uh, for example, in the United uh, Human Rights Treaty bodies or in regional courts, uh, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the European Court and the African Court of Human and People's Rights. What has emerged is a law on reparation that includes obligations to redress and rehabilitation. That redress includes effective remedy and access to justice. Full reparation is achieved through restitution, compensation, rehabilitation, satisfactions, measures of non-repetition. 
I, I, those interested, I recommend them to take a look at General Comment 3 of the com, uh, Committee Against Torture, adopted by the Commission Against Torture, that details the context of all this uh, uh, important concept of reparation. An essential component of reparation is the prohibition against discrimination. And important also for the topic at hand is the autonomy of reparations to penal liability. The alleged perpetrator do not need to be apprehended or convicted to generate a, a, a full reparation. Essential is to in the law of the reparation, the concept of victims that include individual and collective victims, family members and dependents or those who suffer harm. Harm is broadly defined, physical or mental. Very important also is in the law of reparations that the victims are not simply the object of reparation. Attuned with the developments of international law, the law of reparations established that it is that this is a system victim-centered, and accordingly, reparations require the participation of the victims. This is a secondary regime, meaning this regime of reparation is triggered by the violation of the primary norm of international law as uh, and we are going to analyze that, that concerning a, 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 a chattel enslavement, but it shows the path to follow when a violation has taken place. And also takes care of some of the criticism that exists uh, against uh, the reparation in case of uh, uh, enslavement, chattel enslavement, uh, for example, because of the notion of victims or the issue that the perpetrators cannot be found today. That's not part of the law of reparations now. In order to set the issue of reparation also, it's important to mention that the variety of societies have used transitional justice principles to promote peace and justice in the aftermath of mass atrocities. Four common characteristics of transitional transitional justice have been identified. Seeking truth, pursuing justice, providing reparation for victims, and reforming institutions. This uh, development in the context uh, of transitional justice promote broader goals that also are relevant in this case, including reconciliation and economic development. Repairing past harms symbolize the international community and a recognition of victim suffering and public provision of reparation contributes to healing, which promote reintegration in the transitional society or when we deal with great violations of human rights. Now, reparations arising from chattel enslavement. Chattel enslavement is recognized as a crime against humanity. Enslavement is recognized as a crime against humanity. The organization of this, the creation of wealth, its wealth, its brutality, the inhumanity of making the slave person a piece of property uh, whose descendants inherited their modern slave status with little hope for freedom are just a few indications, brutal indications of this horrendous crime. The scope of uh, this uh, crime is tremendous. An estimated 11,328,000 uh, Africans were delivered to nations across the Atlantic, with
with around 13 million having left African ports. In addition, the abuses perpetrated, including all the cycles, the moment of capture and sale, before being forced on slave ships, slave traders often branded and slave with hot hiders, the transportation across the ocean led to additional physical and psychological harms, including separation from family culture, overcrowded conditions, constant exposure to disease, poor ventilation. Uh, Patricia Sellers talked uh, yesterday about the sexual crimes committed all, uh, all, during all the process of enslavement uh, that uh, are, 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 by themselves are crimes against humanity, of course. It is no wonder that the shock wave from this horrendous crime of enslavement and the transatlantic slave trade continue to be felt today. The global trade uh, of enslaved Africans and slave-made products required the development of what's important for the development of modern finance and led to a creation of new industry. National economies were, however, not alone in reaping benefits from the slave trade. Business and corporations, including banks and shipping companies, individually benefited from this uh, trade. Reckoning with the arms of enslavement is not just a question of the past. Slavery still exists around in the world, uh, today around the world. The International Labor Organization estimated that in 2016, 40.3 million people were victims of modern-day slavery. Forms of slavery and practices similar to slavery include human trafficking, forced labor, death bondage, and servitude. There are an estimate of 24.9 million victims of human trafficking around the world. In 2017, the Inter-American Court delivered its first decision concerning slavery and human trafficking in the case of Hacienda Brasil Verde Workers versus Brazil. As mentioned in the panel yesterday, the ramification of the slave trade and enslavement can be also felt through racial societal structures that continue to be maintained. It is difficult also to deny that different forms of moral slavery are as a minimum facilitated today because there was not a reckoning with the past that is very much present today. Now, in terms of theories concerning the applicability of international law to reparations, scholars have proposed a variety of theories for rhetorical purposes or there are components, different components in all of them, but just to summarize, let me put some together. The first denies the applicability of international law to remedy the arms of enslavement and basically uh, mention the principles of non-retroactivity and intertemporal law. Uh, however, it should be noted that while uh, new peremptory norms uh, uh, do not generate a retroactive assumption of legal responsibility, it is not clear that there were no principles that, uh, at that time uh, that the shuttle enslavement took place that defied the direct applicability of the principle of intertemporal law. Uh, also, a state might agree to compensate for damage, always, and the agreements could be a source of the creation of a practice with international legal significance. According, uh, I, I'm going to uh, talk more about this theory uh, uh, later when, uh, when 
when I uh, covered the, the, the basis identifying the theory that CISA really has is, uh, for international law. Let me say also that in a similar vein, some have argued that there is no longer a casual connection. It's not only based in the intertemporal principle, but there, are no, there is no causal, con causal connection between the harm that occurred and those presently seeking reparation. Yesterday, Gay McDougall listed all the objections, and I referred everyone to the excellent panel that she conducted today. But the legal complexity of identifying victims and determining what is owed does not, however, excuse the state obligation to embark on such an inquiry when reparations are due. A second legal theory contends that international legal framework is racist and colonialist and that states who insist on applying the intertemporal principle uh, are insisting on the application of colonial law. Both theories have a similarity in the sense that they don't see a role of international law. In responding to proponents of the position that reparation for slavery is barred by the principle of non-reflectivity, and Toyn Boyce argues that the nation of continuous violation under the international human rights framework could be applied to a context of reparation. And the concept it has a continuing character that extends over the entire period during which the act or event the state was obliged to prevent continues and remain. For the sake of time, I'm not going to give all the arguments involving the application of the continuity uh, source for an obligation. I would say also that the, the slave trade contributed to the development of modern finance and the creation of new industries. In the Belgian context, King Leopoldo II appropriated an estimated $1.1 billion in today's money from Congo. One can argue that Asashi Sador states that the obligation to pay reparation is rooted in the common law principles of restitution and unjust enrichment for reparations as much as possible to restore victims to a pre-victimized state. Additional arguments that were presented yesterday, among others, by Nora Whitman and Mamadou Heavy, include that transatlantic enslavement violated international law at the time it started, and different grounds are invoked in that line. One, that international law is not equal to European law writ at large. And on the basis of comparative studies, the notion of just war and penal law that different uh, societies outside the European realm uh, follow justify uh, slavery to a certain extent uh, in the cases of a just war or criminal law as a penalty, but not chattel enslavement. This idea of people as commodity, their descendants, and the whole structure of organized production, horror, and brutality. The International Law Commission is codifying now the general principles of international law, and some of us are establishing that the general principles of international law, quotation mark, accepted by civilized nations, end quote, was an obsolete concept already when it was adopted. I, uh, I also would like to say that the argument for the continuous application uh, uh, of uh, international, uh, I mean, the, the argument on the grounds uh, that uh, uh, at the law at that time uh, did not accept chattel uh, uh, enslavement were not grounded in the 
universal character of international law, not the European character. Also, as Judge Robinson stated, even in European law, we can find, for example, as, as he quoted, as mentioned by, uh, by uh, in 1562, that qu the Queen Elizabeth statement to Captain Hawkins, the 1815 Vienna Declaration on the Abolition of Slave Trade, with direct reference to humanity and morality to interpret it, the Treaty of Paris of 1814, determining that we were in presence of principles that have existed always for ages, questioning the legality of transatlantic slave trade on the basis of general principle of law. I would like to add that we can, it's necessary to engage in further comparative analysis involving the recognition of the humanity of all persons also in the origin of this uh, brutal uh, form of uh, enslavement, the, the enslavement uh, for a chattel. Uh, for example, uh, the expression of uh, Father Las Casas establishing that the Indians had a soul, they were grounded on this idea of common humanity, and we don't find these uh, statements that would uh, partialize the existence of human beings. There are different expressions of that, and again, because of time, uh, we are going to cover this at least in the first round. The siete partidas. These are one of the terms that I can mention without a problem of pronunciation. Also establish basis for the common humanity of, uh, of individuals. Uh, I also would uh, like uh, to add that even in the 16th century, additional arguments could be made involving the idea that there were contemporaneous notions of imperative norms of use cogens, in the sense that certain things could not be done, even at that time. And that created a serious problem uh, to argue that uh, the chattel uh, trade uh, did not uh, include, if not in totality, a, a very important concepts that even at that time were uh, considered uh, violating this notion that some things could not happen. I will say that the Nuremberg Principles built on this idea that there are basic notions that because of relevance and their importance, lead to consequences in international law. I will uh, mention also the following, that international law has been able uh, to develop and assume the challenges of our time. International law is a living instrument that through interpretation, norm creation, has been able to address issues facing humankind. The process of decolonization the creation of human rights norms, the principles of Nuremberg, the content of the principle of non-discrimination, the law of reparation. So this is very essential then to understand that what is before us is not only the topic of reparation for enslavement in case of the chattel slavery, but what is at stake also is the relevance of international law to address key issues facing the international community. 
and we see in practice the development of a space at the international and the national level, uh, stressing the need to address this topic. In Belgium, in England, there are significant movements for, for the acknowledgement of the uh, consequences of uh, slavery. In the United States, the Pentagon has begun the process of changing the names of army bases that are currently named after the leaders of the Confederacy. More recently, Evanston, Illinois, became the first U.S. city to enact reparation scheme for African American victims of city historic racist housing policies. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on the topic has also identified examples of domestic efforts to, uh, to establish reparation programs, including the monetary settlement of the government of Canada with indigenous people. Let me finish my comments, asking for your tolerance if I exceed my time, uh, stating and repeating something. What is at stake here is the relevance of international law to address key issues facing humankind. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Claudio, uh, for your uh, excellent uh, remarks. Um, I will, of course, be picking up on a number of the themes uh, that you've highlighted so well. Um, so let me uh, go back and make uh, one point and actually start the conversation uh, with Umberto, and I'll come back to you, Claudio, a number of critical points that you've raised. And of course, I also promise that I'll go to the chat and see if there are questions there uh, from our audience. So to uh, Umberto, um, I found uh, quite thought-provoking uh, your comments and comparative perspective, especially looking at the issues of systemic racism and the movement and call for reparations in Brazil, comparing to developments in the United States. Uh, you highlighted a number of things that are quite common in the conversation, for example, the issue of police brutality against especially young black men. Obviously, that's an issue that is quite uh, relevant for the debate in the United States, especially given recent cases. These are not exclusive cases, but the cases that got a lot of attention, not just in the United States, but also around the world. And you also highlighted the issue of affirmative action and measures that have been taken to ensure that Brazilian society is more reflective of the aspiration of the principle of equality. So can you, as taking from that point of departure, point out if you see any synergies between what is happening in addressing these issues now, for example, in the U.S., but also globally? Yes, the George Floyd happening and death and uh, it started a, a, a lot of explosion of protests all around the world. In Brazil, uh, the Brazilian black movement uh, were shouting uh, a lot of time, but uh, sometimes it, it was listened and sometimes it was not. A lot of uh, activists of the Brazilian black movement are very prepared to the discussion that uh, more and more becomes a, a, a specialized discussion with uh, a lot of lawsuits 
in, at the Supreme Court, uh, all the these affirmative subjects rules, uh, uh, like the, the, the examination of the public uh, admission, it's, uh, it starts to have a lot of lawsuits with the, the, the individuals that are going to get the job. So lots of uh, uh, courts start to discuss and roll. So you have to be, as a lawyer, be prepared. And uh, it's, it's always the, the same uh, thing. But in the, especially because of this government, the federal government now, nowadays, we get some uh, places back and people start to, to discuss again the affirmative action and the, this, the, the quota systems. Ah, oh, I don't agree. Well, but <laughs> it doesn't matter if you agree or not. Uh, it's now it's the law. And uh, so, but I think I always say, and people from the affirmative action sometimes uh, be angry because the affirmative actions objects uh, sometimes is, is a bit small for the, 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 the slavery happening in Brazil, 350 years. So it's, you cannot find that you, you will uh, make a response and of, about all the, the, the horror uh, with some jobs and some places at the university and some places at the jobs, the public jobs, it's so small. So, but it's very important. But so you sometimes start to, 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 to stay with the dog <laughs> running uh, after himself, itself. So uh, the reparation, the slavery reparation, uh, talking in space, slavery reparation discussion is a bit more, uh, it's a bit, it's so large that you find more, more, more space, it, although it is difficult, but you have some permanent uh, subjects of the Brazilian back movement, uh, like the Quilombos fights, uh, the the black churches, the Zillow with Ubanda, I call black church because I don't find other way to, to translate, but the, the, the religious uh, fights that uh, Umbanda and uh, Umbanda and Candomblé uh, people are always being uh, postponed, being persecuted and always the and uh, you find a lot of things so go to uh, slavery reparation slavery reparation subject is to go more ahead and be connected with Africa be connected with Jamaica be connected with United States the, and be connected also with the, the Black Lives uh, Matter and uh, movements. So 
we uh, are very, very happy to be part of this uh, huge movement. And um, a lot, especially the, 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 the young people, they are fighting very hard. So I think we are in a, in a good movement. We have a lot, a lot of problems. Uh, with the, the, the lethality of the police. But uh, every day when you, you open the newspaper, you have uh, uh, cases of police brutality, police uh, uh, killing people. And, uh, but in the same time, you have this movement that goes ahead and ahead and now i think it's the time that go ahead the uh, slavery reparation that, that which is a very difficult uh, one thing that was very important is going uh, behind memory in all all in all places of the country in all municipalities and fighting for the finance reparation. I, I remember that I, I went to the United States in the International Visitor Leadership Program, yeah, and I went to the Tulsa Memorial uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is uh, uh, part of the discussion. A lot of time, the Tulsa uh, Tulsa uh, uh, find the killings uh, stayed very hidden in in the United States, and then uh, they still probably going ahead. And the, the the reparation now movement is going United States and also in Brazil. We have to go and go and go. That's mm -hmm. uh, the remark. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much. I think you make a number of important observations, especially highlighting the broader. So we could move from essentially the individual cases, cases of affirmative action and so on, and then move on to the Black Lives Matter movement. But there's an interesting connection to the bigger issue uh, that is of more systemic nature. So yesterday we had some very interesting discussions, starting with the opening panel by Sahila Rebekos, essentially trying to expl explicate on the place of slavery as an institution, but not just as an institution, but as an economic institution. And on top of that, clarifying that it did not just end there, you then had the subsequent policies, and this came out throughout the rest of the panels in terms of what is called Jim Crow in the United States, of systemic oppression from, and keeping down of those particular communities. So really, really very important connections that you're making to the wider issue that was covered and discussed yesterday. Claudia, if I may come to you, uh, keeping in mind that we are going to probably be running a little bit low on time, uh, to just pick up on one important point. I love the way you connected the discussion uh, today with the discussion yesterday, especially keeping in mind some people may not have had the opportunity to follow everything. Luckily, everything is recorded and it's really worth the watch. Now, if I go to the central questions around the legal aspects that you covered so well, Claudio, especially this notion about the place of international law, which one could argue was part of the system of oppression, right? 
but you also gave us a more hopeful side about the place of international law essentially as a site of redemption. So in your view, Claudio, what are the implications for international law if it remains silent on the impact and legacy of the transatlantic slave trade and its consequences? Well, Charles, uh, thanks uh, for your question, and also thanks to, to Umberto for his uh, excellent contribution and, and uh, comments. Well, uh, I think uh, we, 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 we do not have good experiences when we do not address key issues facing humankind. Uh, it's very important uh, to channel essential issues through, uh, through the legal principles, because uh, otherwise we're confronted on different notions of justice, who is stronger and who is weaker. And international law, even the European international law, had concepts that in changing circumstances are valid. The, the principle of sovereign equality, for example, it was an essential problem. Uh, the generation of norms. So everyone has contributed to the reality of international law, that is international law. And I will mention the concept of self-determination, for example, or the, the, very important, or the law of reparations. We mentioned the different venues of reparations. And, and when we're seeing, and Umberto was talking about this, and you ask all over the world, this uh, uh, this aspiration of people of addressing topics that are essential and continue uh, to have a fundamental uh, impact in society, uh, the idea that international law doesn't have an answer uh, has serious implication in relation of the type of societies where we want to live. Indeed. Uh, so, sorry, Claudio, I'm not going to have to jump in. I realize that we're going to be running out of time. We have a couple of minutes. Um, I just saw just now a couple of questions in the chat, but I'm afraid uh, since we don't have the opportunity now to extend the conversation, we'll probably have to leave it there. Uh, for the next couple of minutes, I don't know, Umberto, if you want to take one minute uh, to give final reflections, and Claudio, I'll come back with, to you maybe with 30 seconds. <laughs> final remarks, because we have to end right on the hour, so we can have everybody the 10-minute break, and then they will come back at the next panel. 30 seconds. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think that uh, we must do uh, many events like this because it's, we have a lot of things to talk, a lot of things to change, and uh, someone asked for the heroes. Yes, we have to find the heroes that were forgotten, bring them to, our, to this place to say, we made this country, we made the world, and we have to have the recognition. And a lot of people earn money that, and, and they have to pay because the slavery was a history crime, like Yero Ferreiro always says. Indeed. Thank you so very much, Umberto, uh, for being so, so brief. Uh, Claudio, 10 seconds. <laughs> well, uh, sometimes I hear the following thing. I heard in the Committee on Torture, Inter-American Commission, 
okay, why this problem and not other problem? Huh? You know, where do you start? Where does it end? And uh, uh, in the practice and development of human rights law, the idea that in order to advance in a topic, you need to advance in all the topics, it has not been the practice of international law. So there are certain conditions why certain topics are the object of international community. But never in the development of human rights law, the idea is unless you advance in everything, you don't advance in anything. Let me finalize thanking you and Umberto Adami and all the co-sponsors for the, this uh, panel and for having invited me. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Claudio, and thank you to Umberto. Uh, I'm grateful to you for your excellent presentations and your insights. Uh, it's clear that we just started the conversation, but I hope that we'll be able to continue this conversation. Luckily, we have another panel coming up. Yesterday was fantastic. I'm sure the rest of the day will be fantastic. So please join me in giving a huge virtual round of applause uh, to our two distinguished speakers. Uh, the next panel is on the legacy of enslavement, contemporary dimensions and remedies. It will start, I believe, in about 10 minutes or so. I thank you, and bye-bye for now. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, people. We are around now. Professor Charles, Professor Claudio. Bye-bye to you. Bye-bye. I hope to see you in Brazil or in any other place. Bye-bye. Dr. Levitt, you're muted. You know, I, I don't like to be muted, uh, Wes, so I, I, I muted myself. It's okay in this case. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeremy Levitt, uh, a professor of law. Florida A&M University College of Law, uh, which is significant because it's uh, uh, the country's uh, largest historically black university law school, one of five in the nation. And for a topic on the legacy of enslavement, uh, contemporary dimensions and remedies, we have two absolutely wonderful speakers, uh, one from UCLA, the other from uh, Loyola, Los Angeles, and myself, the moderator, the one being born and raised in Los Angeles. So we're we're connected, but not connected here at the same time. Uh, first, let me just introduce the, the first speaker, uh, Tendai Achume, uh, a star uh, in the profession who's made quite a, a large splash. In fact, I might say it's a tidal wave in just a, a short number of years. Professor of Law at UCLA, uh, former faculty director at the UCLA uh, Law Promise Institute for Human Rights, and a research associate with the African Center for Migration and Society at the University of Westwaterstrand. Uh, but most importantly, I think now her work is really having an impact uh, in terms of the law doctrine uh, norms uh, and so forth that she is trying to put in place uh, in her role as United Nations uh, uh, Human Rights Council appointed special rapporteur on contemporary forms of racism and racial discrimination and xenophobia and related intolerance and certainly should be celebrated for the first woman to serve in this role since 1993. And then we have uh, my brother, Eric Miller, 
uh, of Scottish and Jamaican descent, which means he has very hot blood. And so we know that he's going to adequately uh, provoke us. A professor of law and the Leo J. O'Brien Fellow at Loyola Law School, Los Angeles, a former law clerk to Judge Stephen Reinhardt on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and he focuses on the intersection uh, of criminal justice with sociology, criminology, and the study of problem-solving courts and legal theory. So we're, we're in uh, a great space for uh, an informative lecture. Uh, we're going to keep to the time best we can to allow for um, uh, a Q&A session, which should be about 30 minutes. And without further ado, I'm going to pass the table to Dendai, and she's going to uh, give us an education that is needed not just in the legal academy, but uh, I would say in the United States uh, writ large. Thank you. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, um, Jeremy. And I, I want to start off by saying that the work that I do would not be possible without the really important work that you and others within Basel have done to, to chart the way for people such as myself to be able to be in the roles that we are in the way that we are. And as you say, I am joining you all from Los Angeles and want to acknowledge my presence in UCLA's existence on the traditional ancestral and ceded territory of the Gabrielino, um, Gabrieleno and Tongva peoples. Um, to the organizers of this conference as well, I want to say thank you very much for including me in this timely and really pressing um, symposium. You know, I want to also thank the other participants who I think so far have provided a wealth of valuable insight regarding reparations under international law for enslavement of, of Africans. And it's, it's really a powerful and humbling experience to be a part of an event um, involving some truly pioneering forces in the field of, of reparations. So my remarks today are based on a report that I submitted to the UN General Assembly in 2019 in my capacity. Um, as Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of, of Racism. And the report was entitled Reparations for Racial Discrimination Rooted in Colonialism and Slavery. For those of you who haven't had an opportunity to, to take a look at it, um, I recommend it because it goes into far more detail than I'm going to be able to go into in the next 15 minutes. But what I thought I would do in the time that I have is give some background um, for the motivations of the report um, that I produced and then also speak directly to some important ways that we should understand international legal obligations borne by states to provide um, reparations um, and to think about remedies. Um, and in many ways, my comments build on comments that have been made by prior speakers as well. So we're currently just past the midpoint um, of the United Nations decade for people of African descent. Um, and 2021 also marks the 20th anniversary of the Durban Declaration and Program of Action. And, and as many of you will, will know, the World Conference Against Racism, which took place in Durban in 2001, and the regional conferences that led up to, to the uh, Durban Conference, um, involved among, if not the most powerful, transnational mobilizations for a global human rights system that's adequately equipped to address racial discrimination in the contemporary moment. And the issue of reparations was very high on the agenda of those who were involved in, in Durban, as I'm sure Gay McDougall could tell us, who was on a panel um, yesterday. Um, in the regional conferences leading up to Durban, activists, scholars, and many others made a very powerful case for reparations for colonialism and slavery to take um, center stage. Um, and for the responsible nations finally to be held accountable for reparations for slavery and colonialism. 
but they faced serious opposition from Canada, from the United States, and from European nations for reasons that um, should be um, obvious. And in the time after Durban, so in the period after 2001, the issue of reparations has seemingly been a marginal one within the United Nations, a third rail, um, so to speak, among its member state bodies, and especially among the former colonial powers within the UN. And I think it's important to highlight that these former colonial powers of the First World, however you want to refer to them, which are you know, the Western liberal democratic bloc within the United Nations, self-conceptualize, I would say, as the guardians of the human rights framework. But ironically, it is this very block that has been the most resistant to reparations for slavery and colonialism and to addressing racism and racial discrimination, including within the global human rights um, framework. In my work as Special Rapporteur, I would say that the marginalization of reparations, whether we're talking about a one-on-one conversation with UN member states or within the UN framework as a, as a whole, I would say that this marginalization is typically achieved not through an outright denial of the responsibility for for slavery and colonialism or even a denial of the utter horrors that that they entailed, Um, even though I think there are definitely many who deny, who are denialists about slavery and and colonialism. I would say that in, in, in my experience, the marginalization of discussions around reparations for slavery Um, are typically achieved by uh, saying, you know, reparations aren't possible or they're not available under existing legal frameworks, right? So, yes, we can concede that slavery and colonialism were bad, and yes, we can concede that there are certain powers that were responsible for them, but the project of reparations is just one that's entirely impossible under the legal framework that we have and given questions around um, feasibility. And then sometimes you'll also hear arguments around the idea that these are problems that are of the past. You know, slavery and colonialism happened in the past, we've moved on, and so we should be focusing um, on more contemporary um, challenges. And, you know, nothing could be further from the truth, and this is not a case that I have to make to participants in this um, symposium. We are all gathered here because we understand that colonialism and slavery and and the the ramifications and the legacies of them are are not in the past. They're very much a contemporary um, issue. But I would say that among the many arguments I'm having to make in my capacity as special rapporteur is the claim that, indeed, there is a contemporary um, relevance um, here. And so, as, as I imagine it, or the, as I experience it, the battle for reparations within the UN system is a political battle, and it's often one that's articulated in legal terms. And um, my report, event, events such as the symposium, I believe are, are vital for pushing back against a status quo that has been hostile to an international movement for um, reparations. And that background is the background into which I published the 2019 report on reparations that my remarks are based on. Um, in the time that's remaining, I want to make a few points that I elaborate upon in my, in, my, in my report, and many of them actually were made very eloquently by Professor Grossman in the previous panel. But I think they, they, are, um, they bear repetition because of their importance to the conversation that we are having. So the first is that reparations um, generally are a fundamental and established remedy under prevailing international law um, and principles. And too often, as I've mentioned, debates about reparations for racial injustice begin from the premise that reparations are inherently exceptional or an unusual um, remedy. And yet reparations as a holistic 
um, uh, an effective remedy for those who have suffered a wrongful act are far from novel. And rather, states routinely provide reparations for wrongful acts and violations to one another and even to their own citizens. And they're also, reparations are a fundamental um, aspect of both international law and international human rights law, international practices, tribunal decisions, and other sources of international law that have long held that state breaches for legal obligations entail responsibility to provide for reparations. Um, the, the draft articles on responsibility for states um, for international wrongful acts, which Professor Grossman also discussed, happen to be silent on reparations for harm caused by um, legal acts. And a lot of the debate when it comes to reparations for slavery revolve around whether slavery um, was legal at the time and in which it was uh, most uh, rampant. But as many of the panelists who've spoken have really highlighted, um, that kind of approach, which is based in concerns about the intertemporal principle um, in addition, um, the questions around whether slavery was wrongful at the time are ones that um, really can be addressed within the public international law framework as well. So we've heard persuasive rebuttals to being this an absolute bar, but to, the, to these kinds of arguments being an absolute bar to reparations um, for slavery. And it's important to highlight that even under the current doctrine, doctrine of the intertemporal principle, direct and ongoing consequences of wrongful acts that extend to when the act is considered internationally wrongful, as is the case right now, do incur liability um, for reparations. And so we should be understanding the project for reparations, and I think many of the speakers who've spoken already have articulated this sort of understanding, which is one I push for in the report. We should be understanding reparations as encompassing two dimensions, um, historic racial injustices for, um, of slavery and, and colonialism that remain largely unaccounted for today, but which nonetheless require restitution, compensation, satisfaction, rehabilitation and guarantees of non-repetition, but just as urgently, reparations are urgent to address contemporary racially discriminatory effects of structures of inequality and subordination that, result from, that have resulted from the failure to redress um, racism from slavery and colonialism. And so when we think about entrenched structures of racial um, subordination, whether we're talking about the United States, whether we're talking about Brazil, and I know my co-panelists will give some examples specifically from the United States, these structures are direct products of regimes of enslavement. And the de facto caste systems that remain firmly in place um, right now, and doing these structures of racial injustice um, are part and parcel of a, of a comprehensive approach to um, reparations. And I should note, as I do in the report, that the obligations to provide um, reparations are fully entrenched in international human rights law, including Article 6 of the International Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which requires reparations for racially discriminatory um, human rights violations. My point, or the point that I'm trying to make here, is not that there are no legal barriers under existing um, doctrines of, of international uh, law when it comes to thinking about achieving reparations, but my point is that those barriers are typically overstated and the existing laws could sustain far more than we are uh, led to believe, but instead what we encounter is a legal formalism that obscures the full potential of existing international law to support reparations for the injustices of, of colonialism and, and slavery. Um, and it's worth pointing out, as I do in the report, that 
International legal doctrine has had a longer history of justifying and enabling colonial domination and, and even in some cases um, justifying the acts of enslavement and the slave trade than it does a history of guaranteeing equal rights to all human beings. And I think to the extent that legal barriers exist, we should not treat those barriers as insurmountable. And in fact, we should treat those barriers with suspicion and target them as subjects for a decolonial project for those of us who are invested in the decolonization of international law. And here I agree with Professor Grossman with the idea that the international legal project can be a decolonial project, one that very much centers the project of reparations for slavery as achievable and, and as, as urgent. And also I think it's important to highlight that, and, and this was highlighted in yesterday's conversation as well, that reparations for slavery were paid and they have been achieved for certain groups, but typically they've been achieved on, on a racially discriminatory basis um, as well. And so reparations have gone to um, enslavers and their descendants rather than to formerly um, enslaved. And so Britain, for example, which paid the equivalent today of today about 65 billion pounds in contemporary terms to compensate enslavers, um, we might think about the expenditure that was that is represented by that figure for reparations, but not too formally enslaved to the um, um, enslavers uh, instead. And I'll, I'll point out, as sociologist Guraminda Bambra has, that when we think about the reparations that Britain paid to former enslavers, it turns out that the UK didn't finish paying off the bond that it had um, taken out to pay former enslavers until 2015. And if you think about that, it means that you have people in Britain who up until 2015 as taxpayers were contributing to the payment off of that bond to enslavers, right, when we're still here having conversations about whether reparations for formerly um, enslaved are viable. And so I, I guess I just want to conclude by saying if the same commitment and ingenuity that transformed entire peoples into property and implemented a global structure of domination, which we refer to now as the system of slavery. If even a fraction of that commitment and ingenuity were applied to the issue of reparations, I don't think we would be living in the current reality. We would have a very different reality. And I think this kind of symposium um, is the kind of intervention that is required to shift our reality to one where conversations around reparation, big reparations begin from a starting point of them as being achievable, but just requiring um, commitment at the international level as well. So I will I will pause there and and look forward to to our Q and to our Q and A. Thank you, uh, Tendai. Brilliant and uh, a great stage uh, I think has been set uh, for Eric to come in now with. Um, some specifics about uh, what some have called a genocide uh, here in America, certainly uh, uh, massive uh, human rights violations and, and displacement. And so I want to hand uh, now the, the microphone to Eric. We're going to hold questions until the end, and hopefully uh, both uh, panelists will be able to, to engage the questions that you have. Eric, please proceed. Thank you. And... Um, uh, and it's hard to follow such a powerful um, presentation. Um, uh, you know, as a descendant of uh, enslaved people myself, uh, it's just um, powerful to think of myself and my uh, British Jamaican family 
literally paying our enslavers um, by paying that bond. So uh, the descendants of slaves are, are paying their enslavers um, reparations. Uh, uh, that's that's really powerful. Um, so I want to um, talk, uh, in some ways, uh, take a, a quite parochial turn, but in other ways, uh, quite a universal one, uh, to think about uh, reparations for uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. And Tulsa, Oklahoma is in the front line of the battle for reparations in the United States. And to understand why, um, I'll give you a little bit of history to uh, help you see what's going on. So in the early morning of June 1st, 1921, White Tulsans, including the State National Guard, as well as people deputized by the county sheriff and the city police, murdered as many as 300 black American residents of the Greenwood District of the city of Tulsa. They raised 35 city blocks to the ground and looted the homes of 10,000 black residents. The massacre was all the more shocking given the thriving nature of Greenwood, a cultural and business center. The district was segregated uh, by race, but in Tulsa, the black neighborhood was thriving at the same rate or perhaps even outstripping the white district. Black pioneers in medicine, in the hotel industry, in film and theater and music, whose innovations in Tulsa made an impact around the world, lived and thrived there. So impactful was the massacre on black business and entrepreneurialism that a recent Harvard study found that it accounted for a national pause on black patent filings around the United States in uh, the year following the massacre. Black people flocked to Oklahoma in part because it only became a state in 1907 and before that it was territory run by various indigenous nations who treated black people very differently than in the segregated South and North. Throughout the United States for the 50 years prior to the massacre, states like Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi had been waging a violent campaign to enforce a form of segregation that looked and felt like slavery. For black people, Oklahoma was, in the words of novelist Ralph Ellison, the promised land. For black Americans, Tulsa was called the Black Wall Street. The massacre was thus an attempt at ethnic cleansing. The white citizens of Tulsa, who derived more recently than many of the black uh, citizens, um, backed by this, their state, their county, and the municipal government, sought to grab the lands and the property of the Black Tulsans living in Greenwood. The massacre, as I mentioned, began the night of May 30th, 1921, and continued into the morning of June 1st. White citizens, um, deputized by the police and county sheriff, burned down 36 to 38 city blocks. 3,000 terrorized people fled the city. The rest were rounded up and held under armed guard for days in internment camps at the local baseball park and convention center and hospital. Children were separated from parents. Uh, overnight, 5,000 African-Americans became homeless. The Red Cross mobilized to provide tents for the thousands who remained in uh, Tulsa uh, and they lived in uh, Red Cross tents uh, over that winter. So the hot spot for the battle for reparations uh, in America is over who gets to determine the remedies for the survivors, uh, for the diaspora, and for the still remaining black Tulsa community. And the last two issues addressing the claims of the diaspora 
and rebuilding community institutions are ones that are shared by reparations efforts everywhere. And uh, that's where um, uh, I come in because I'm part of a litigation team that is currently pursuing a public nuisance claim against uh, the county and city of Tulsa uh, and some other entities. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this um, this litigation. So, so what's a public nuisance? Oklahoma law defines a nuisance as uh, unlawfully doing an act or omitting to perform a duty, which act or omission annoys, injures, endangers the comfort, repose, health or safety of others, or in any way renders other persons insecure in life or in the use of property. And a nuisance is public if it affects an entire community or neighborhood. So the claim is essentially that the positive acts of some person, in this case the county, the city, and the uh, Chamber of Commerce, through their involvement in the massacre and its aftermath, and indeed through continuing acts of racism and intimidation lasting until this day, created conditions that did and still undermine the health and safety of the uh, community in the black community in Tulsa. Because a public nuisance is, in effect, a continuing harm, it does not face the statute of limitations problems that uh, other lawsuits face, and in particular lawsuits under, uh, uh, brought under the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution uh, through the enabling statute 42 United States Code, uh, Section 1983. And uh, I was part of a litigation team that brought um, a federal lawsuit in 2003 uh, and we failed on statute of limitations grounds. And I, I just want to echo again, Professor Achimi's uh, insight uh, that it is a mixture of formalism and exceptionalism that prevented that litigation because we modeled that litigation on a number of other uh, lawsuits, including the um, uh, Holocaust survivors litigation. And uh, uh, the statute of limitations was told uh, in the Holocaust litigation, um, but not in uh, in Tulsa. And uh, we can perhaps in the question and answer think a little bit about why that might be, but uh, I, I think one hint is uh, that to the extent that the statute of limitations is, is lifted, um, the result is too transformational uh, for uh, judges to contemplate. Okay, so the classic public nuisance claim is uh, someone opening a pig farm next door to you and the smell and sanitation undermines the safety of uh, you and your community. And another version is citing a chemical manufacturing plant in a poor community that has a similar impact on uh, health and safety. Here the pollutant was and continues to be white racist violence along with the continuing underdevelopment of the black community in Greenwood and North Tulsa uh, uh, through the white community's attempt to take its land. The plaintiffs that are in our lawsuit are uh, three living survivors. So we have someone who's 100, um, who's uh, Van Ellis, 106-year-old uh, Lassie Randall, and 107-year-old um, Viola Fletcher, as well as uh, three descendants, uh, of individuals, uh, one killed in the massacre, two rendered homeless, um, a church, uh, Mount Vernon A&E, that was burned to the ground, 
and uh, the African-American Ancestral Society of Tulsa. The lawsuit identifies seven de uh, defendants who have contributed to the public nuisance or unjustly enriched themselves at the expense of the black citizens of Tulsa. Uh, so in addition to the city of Tulsa, the county and the Chamber of Commerce, we're also suing in their official capacity, the sheriff, the state national guard, and for the continuing harms of segregation and blighting the living conditions of the black Greenwood and North Tulsa communities, we're suing the Tulsa Metropolitan Planning Commission and the Tulsa Development Authority because they acted along with the city and county to isolate the black community from the rest of Tulsa and fragment the community, uh, the black community itself through city planning initiatives uh, that ran a freeway through the middle of uh, the city. And of course they cited it in the black part of town. Now here's where things get interesting, I think. Uh, the principal remedy for a public nuisance suit, lawsuit is abatement, which essentially eschews direct monetary payments to individuals, the federal solution, and instead focuses on remediating the damage caused. Uh, so it would involve, in the case of the pig farm or the chemical plant, uh, some kind of uh, super fund um, style abatement to uh, move the farm somewhere uh, less um, uh, populated or to take the chemicals out of the soil. Since the harm to the community in Tulsa was to undermine its business and political leadership, preclude economic and social development through restrictive zoning, substandard infrastructure, and the creation of food and health deserts, as well as redevelopment that ran highways through the community to both split it apart and split it off from the white community, abatement is going to have to redress these wrongs. Simply put, when the assault is on the human, social, and political capital of a distinctive community, then uh, the remedy must be to recreate that capital, perhaps through direct payments, but in this case, by empowering the community to determine for itself the sorts of institutions that it wants and needs to create a safe and healthy neighborhood. This aspect of the litigation, self-determination, is, I think, at the heart of reparations. Reparations is, on my view, best defined as a significant, ongoing, intergenerational wrong that continues to oppress a discrete group or community. I happen to think this definition fits uh, reasonably well with uh, historical and international uh, notions of uh, reparations. Um, but it also uh, applies, and it also focuses not just on slavery, what I would call reparations back then, but it applies to what I would call reparations right now, which would include uh, both the Tulsa experience, but perhaps things like um, uh, violent policing targeted at discrete groups. So we've seen uh, uh, that in Chicago. The difference between reparations and distributive justice is that we can identify a wrongdoer and a victim. Even if the wrongdoer is, is no longer around, the victim is. Part of what it means to be a victim is, I think, to have a duty to lift oneself out of victimhood if one can by resisting the wrong or the wrongdoing. But part of being a member of a community in which there are victims is having a duty to help out in that process, not by dictating a remedy, but by empowering the victims to determine for themselves what that remedy should be, and if that uh, remedy is reasonable, 
to help them put it into effect. Reparations on this view is a bottom-up process of group empowerment. It's a form of transformational justice grounded in the classic transformational ideas of truth, justice, and institutional reform. But most of all, it's grounded in the people who still suffer from wrongs that, through perhaps, that though perhaps historical in their origin, are present and felt in their everyday life right now. So I hope that what we're doing in Tulsa has more than a domestic application, that whatever the legal justification for reparations, which is the usual focus of uh, discussions of reparations, uh, remedying intergenerational injuries needs more than simply a payment, a monument, or a scholarship. We need to transform not just our reparations with those who have wronged us to put us on equal footing with them. We need to transform our relationship with ourselves. To lift all of us up, the direct victims, the diaspora, and particularly those at the bottom. That, for me, is a lesson of reparations, and that, for me, is why I'm so excited about the public nuisance model and why I think it fits reparations so well. Thank you. You're muted. Uh, wonderful, and thank you for that, Eric. Um, I will be uh, looking at the chat for questions, but I want to start out with one uh, to throw out to the two of you. Uh, as I uh, listen to you, Eric, I, I, I never look at Tulsa in exclusive terms. I look at Tulsa, I look at Colfax, Louisiana, I look at Rosewood, I look at the Ocoee Massacre here uh, in Central Florida. I'm wondering... Uh, if there is a theory of liability uh, that, that one might conceive when you begin to aggregate all of these various <clears throat> massacres and uh, what we would call even under uh, modern international law terms, uh, genocides of black populations, their displacement, their systematic denial of land that was owned, uh, their land that was never returned. And we have some scholars that have worked on the questions of land. But I'm wondering whether there's a collective theory of liability uh, that might be looked at, uh, perhaps at the federal level. And then, uh, as well, we're seeing more efforts taken at the, the local level uh, with reparations. For example, uh, the Florida legislature uh, passed reparations legislation for the victims of Rosewood. A lot of people don't know that, but they did. Uh, there's been recent legislation here, which was represent, uh, uh, reparations legislation for the Okoe massacre, but ended up being a watered-down bill on, on education for victims. Uh, and I'm wondering whether working locally through legislatures is one way, and whether we need a, an expanded theory of liability, meaning that where you have perhaps a more progressive legislature in another state, perhaps a free state, could that free state decide to pass legislation that would give reparations to persons in other states who were affected by enslavement itself. So almost uh, looking at a, a collective responsibility theory as opposed to a collective liability theory and having a more progressive state wanting to support those victims of enslavement that were in a neighboring state. Just thinking out of the box a bit, I want to throw that at you as questions come in and let you guys um, chew on that a bit. Go ahead. Yeah, that's really interesting. So. Um Newsflash, uh, uh, just today, uh, 
Representative Jackson from Georgia was planning to introduce uh, reparations uh, legislation to Congress um, to uh, provide uh, remedies for the, essentially waiving the statute of limitations and redefining the, the um, uh, cause of actions so that descendants can uh, file lawsuits to uh, essentially resuscitate the uh, federal claims against uh, the state, city, and county of um, state of Oklahoma and city county of Tulsa. So, so there is something that the federal government can do. Um, a big question is whether the federal government bears some responsibility for these local outbreaks. And so uh, I suppose if we were thinking in terms of something like Cooper versus Aaron, uh, a 1950s case in which essentially the federal government failed to adequately protect the um, uh, integration of uh, uh, the high school in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, if we want to have a legal hoop to pin it on, that might uh, work. But I actually think um, uh, that thinking about the wrongs and the different wrongdoers is important. So um, I, I want to to some extent, resist a homogenous understanding of reparations because, because it is um, addressing wrongdoing and we need to hold the wrongdoers accountable or at least identify who they are because um, part of the toxic legacy of uh, oppression is, as we're experiencing in the United States, to deny that the oppression happened and to prevent people talking about it in Tulsa, uh, the state acknowledged that it engaged in a 70-year conspiracy of silence to hush up the massacre, but um, we're seeing the Republican Party engage in a concerted effort to hush up a similar white supremacist insurrection in, uh, uh, on, February 6, on uh, January 6th of this year. One uh, that I'm glad you mentioned, Colfax, uh, looks not uh, unlike um, uh, an attempt by white supremacists to um, reverse the result of a hotly contested election in 1871 in Louisiana, the Colfax massacre. So, um, so I do think that it's important to take both an international but also a parochial lens um, to reparations, in part uh, so that we can um, start the, the truth process of transformational justice by uh, calling out and uh, holding accountable uh, the right people but also uh, that we can uh, uplift uh, the right uh, victims. And uh, I do think the reparations is uh, uh, certainly in this uh, American model, United States model, a bottom-up uh, uh, process. And I think that that is what's really so powerful about it. Can I? Um, so I guess what I would add uh, two things on the question of whether you could build out to broader charges or broader theories of, of collective liability using, say, the framework of genocide. I can't speak to the federal level. That is not where my expertise lies, and I think Eric has dealt with that pretty eloquently. But, you know, at the international level, we might think about the movements that have been driven by 
you know, black Americans in the past to charge genocide at the level of the United States and to say, I mean, at the level of the United Nations and to say we have to reframe the ways that we understand exactly how racial subordination and the human rights violations that result from that are understood and talked about within the international framework, where there can be a tendency to, to um, remove things like genocide that was conduct, conducted under the rubric of slavery and its legacy from the genocide um, framework. So I would say that even though you didn't ask about the international level, you're asking about the federal level, I think there is value um, and pressure to be put on international lawyers, among others, to really think about how frames that have been deployed at the international level for other groups might also fit some of the charges that have been um, leveled, I think, against um, formerly enslaving powers as well. So, yes, I think that there is space for that kind of an approach. And then to just speak to the question of local interventions, I think they are absolutely vital. And in the international context, when we think about how international obligations are fulfilled, we focus on national entities taking steps to fulfill those international obligations when international obligations kind of apply across the board. And if you can have energy and dynamism and movements at the local level that can, you know, fulfill international obligations, I think that's often where the energy is the strongest. I think those are really vital and we have to think about how in the international discourse we don't lose sight of the local and the regional and all of these other micro levels that are urgent um, for the, the push for reparations as well. And, and just to build on that point, you know, too often I think in the international context, we get a payment from one institution to another institution and that's where it stops. And I think that that money needs to trickle down, you know, uh, to, the, to the people who are at the bottom who, um, who are the real still ongoing uh, victims. As I said before, you know, it's nice when one university gives another university uh, money for scholarships. That's great. Um, uh, but that's not going to undo the, the ongoing uh, history of uh, reparations and uh, our legacy of slavery. And so we, you know, that's why we need to reform ourselves as well as demanding that others transform themselves. That's wonderful. There's a question um, from those participating, uh, Gabrielle Hemmings. Uh, she says, uh, Ms. Achume says, international law can bear more than we've given to it uh, to deal with uh, reparations for chattel enslavement. She asked the question, are there any areas left to build out to make those reparations a reality? So, Yes, I think there definitely are areas that, that require additional attention. And I think even at the level of doctrine, so many of the interventions that we had from panelists yesterday were really fleshing out, I think, the kind of refined understanding of international obligations and, you know, to, to provide reparations for tackle slavery that I think need to become more mainstream within international law. So when I was producing my reparations report, one of the things that I did was, was actually just do a survey of international legal scholarship um, that gets to the doctrine of, of how we understand um, um, legal liability. And I would say that the scholarship that makes the affirmative case for um, reparations under international law has been marginalized. And so I think there is work to be done, including by institutions such as ASIL, to help make these kinds of accounts more mainstream. And I see um, this sort of um, 
engagement like the one we're having is absolutely vital for that kind of an approach. But I think one thing, and, and here now I'm speaking in my capacity as, as Special Rapporteur, one thing that I think remains deeply troubling is how some of the barriers to achieving reparations come from deeply held sensibilities within especially first world nations about exactly what slavery um, entailed in the first place, right? So I know we are lawyers here, we're used to having conversations about sophisticated legal theory, but there are fundamental misconceptions that I think dominate the way that most people in the United States, in Canada, in the UK, understand slavery and its centrality to the nation and what it might mean to even begin to repair that the task of just public education, I think, is one that would go a long way to unlocking, you know, the potential of existing international doctrine to, to provide reparations. So the, the battle, I think, has to be fought in multiple arena, and one of them, I think, is just retelling stories about, or retelling, yeah, retelling the history so that people are fully aware. And, and I might point to something that I haven't discussed, but the ongoing debates in the U.S. Congress right now where there is a bill um, that a bill before um, Congress that has been there for many years that involves creating a commission that would study the case for reparations um, in the United States. And I think the congressional hearings that happened this year um, suggested that there may be momentum here. And one of the things that arose in the context of those discussions is the urgency in places like the United States to have a full and official reckoning that would pave the way for, you know, um, pursuing liability. So I think shifting sensibilities is part of the work that is required for us to move closer to a world where we can do more with the doctrine that exists and then where the doctrine is a barrier. It's important to think about how that kind of re-sensitization um, might also help shift the doctrine. And then maybe the final thing that I will say um, on this question is you know, last year's racial justice uprisings that we saw um, after the murder of, of George Floyd, which, be, which began, you know, in the U.S. and then kind of went viral, to me, should be connected to this conversation around reparations in a number of ways. One of them being, how do we, how do we decide what reparations will look like? I agree with, with Eric that in, in thinking about what reparations entail, we should have a comprehensive um, conception, but that conception, I think, is most powerful when it is rooted in social movements, when it is rooted in everyday experiences of ongoing racial subordination um, that's tied to slavery and colonialism. And so if we're thinking about what we as international lawyers can do to unlock you know, the potential for achieving reparations, part of it, I think, is being better connected to some of the movements that I think are most um, active right now in giving voice to what it would mean to transform existing structures of racial subordination. Let me ask both of you uh, a question. I'm sorry, Eric. Uh, you can, you can uh, just build in your answer to this because I, I want to just provoke you a little bit with this question. We tend to speak about reparations in very binary ways with uh, victims and victimizers. I, I want to broaden that uh, just a little bit. Um, we know that there was a massive slave trade from the eastern uh, portions of Africa into uh, the Middle East and Asia, uh, uh, perhaps more prolific and more brutal than what we saw with the transatlantic uh, slave trade. Uh, we know that there was uh, 
African participation in West and Central Africa, particularly many of the larger coastal kings that participated. What, what they knew, uh, how they knew, whether they were aware was chattel slavery in the way that it developed is a, is a different question. But I, I often wonder, do we lose credibility in the conversation about reparations when we don't take a holistic view and look at all the potential violators, even if that means looking at ourselves? Oh, please, Eric. That's all you. <laughs> but then Dahi unmuted first. Uh, no. uh, <laughs> and then happily muted him. So, so um, I, I do believe uh, that it, uh, we shouldn't run away from uh, asking hard questions about, uh, about reparations. I was at one of the HR 40 congressional hearings and uh, one of the other witnesses, um, uh, this is in 2019, uh, was trying to say, uh, hey, look, you know, in, in America's past, it was the Democrats that were the oppressors, not the Republicans. And so um, uh, it's hypocritical for the Democrats to, to support reparations. No, it's not. Um, the Democrats should say we did it and we need to atone and HR 40 uh, is the first step uh, to doing that so that uh, we can engage in the truth part of uh, truth, justice, reparations and institutional uh, reform. Um, so, so I think that's, that's really um, important. And I think it also ties in uh, with a point that Professor Achumi made about storytelling. So, um, the interesting thing about Tulsa, and we might think about um, this applies uh, more broadly, is that um, in Tulsa, it's always been white folks that tell the history of the Tulsa race massacre. Uh, they did it by silencing the story in, uh, in 1921, uh, but now they want to tell it by founding a um, uh, historical site and engaging and encouraging in essentially massacre tourism where the money goes to the Chamber of Commerce in the city and not uh, and not to uh, black folks. Um, but I was rereading um, just the other day our lawsuit and, and some of the documents associated with it and our lead plaintiff from 2003, a guy called uh, John Alexander, served as a domestic uh, uh, worker in a uh, white household and I was contacted by the son of uh, the um, scion of that household. And he said, I, just the other day, and he said, I can't understand why uh, Mr. Alexander filed that lawsuit. Well, it turned out that John Melvin Alexander had been angry about the massacre, at least since his service in the war in uh, 1942, when he uh, was ashamed to tell his, uh, his boatmates, uh, that he was rendered homeless by the massacre. And he was one of the first people that met us when we went down uh, to Tulsa. And the story that someone tells when they're the victim of a genocide, working in the house of the people who did the genocide to them, is different than the story that they tell their families. Because, you know, what are you going to tell the person who burned your house down? That you're the bad guy? No, you've got to lie. And so resistance takes many forms. Um, and, um, and who gets to tell the story uh, allows us to, uh, 
avoid accountability and responsibility. And so uh, freeing us to tell the truth, the first step, I think, of transformational justice, is so very important because, you know, I'm from Glasgow. Um, uh, we're still telling ourselves a fairy tale in Glasgow about, um, about the tobacco trade. Uh, we're still uh, in denial about racism and uh, and that really needs to, to when that changes that changes um, how we speak to each other and and power who gets to tell the story is a major aspect of of uh, racial power and I um, I would maybe just add that you know when we think about regimes of racial subordination and when we think about the regime of the enslavement of Africans and the trade in in Africans, which is a very complex one, really unpacking the complexities of how those regimes are possible and able to succeed, I think, is urgent work, you know, and I don't think, and I think you're right to, in your question, hint that any attempt to mask the complexity of that system, including complicity of you know, nations in West Africa or wherever it might be, any any attempts to kind of mask that undercut the underlying project. I think fully grappling with the regimes requires an honesty in engaging with exactly how they worked and exactly who contributed to what. And I don't think any of that work can ever undercut the claims for reparations that those who suffered those violations ever experienced. I don't I don't think there is any mapping of the complexity of you know, responsibility that can undercut the underlying claims for, for reparations. And then when you think about reparations as being about transforming structures, there too I don't think any attempt to be um, comprehensive in understanding the way the systems works and, and how different groups um, participated will ever mean that the work doesn't remain the same, which is providing compensation to those who suffered the injustices and then also um, undoing the structures that persist to to this day. So I would say, you know, we must be comprehensive, absolutely, and that kind of comprehensiveness will not undercut the, the, the fundamental claims that are made by those who seek um, reparations. I, I think you're right, but w- what I would say is that it's not so much about undercutting claims. I think it is getting a comprehensive historical picture it's, it's telling an honest historical narrative. But there's something else. And I'll just use Senegal as an example. You know, Senegal is uh, where the Gory Island is. Uh, you know that they've invested uh, enormously in uh, diaspora um, return with the African Renaissance Monument, the Museum of Black Civilization, which features largely uh, uh, blacks from the diaspora. I'm actually the ambassador for that museum. Uh, the Gore Memorial, um, uh, and other um, um, infrastructure they've invested heavily in. Mm-hmm. See, I see that as an investment back into the diaspora and, and the greater call for African unity, et cetera. But then there are other questions that I think are worthy of asking, which is out of 54 African states, has one offered diasporans, African Americans, others, dual citizenship, and what might that look like? Right. Um, there, are, there, are, there are tangible and intangible ways to kind of look at this question that actually helps solve the greater yeah. enterprise that we're in, which is the reparations enterprise. 
that, that there's something unique about states with sovereignty mm-hmm. and the power that they have um, to forward an agenda uh, with the diaspora. We haven't reached that place of unification. The work of Du Bois uh, is, is incomplete. The, the work of Kwame uh, Ture is incomplete and so forth. So, so I'm, I'm thinking about it kind of in, in that way as we think about liability and responsibility and the kinds of conversations we need to be having in the diaspora and uh, inside the continent. So let me ask you this. Um, uh, Both of you are in Los Angeles, um, uh, attuned to the various issues of reparations. Uh, We know in the last presidential election for the first time in the history of the country, reparations was a subject of presidential conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there were commitments made by uh, the candidates, the administration, there were progressive you know, claims and statements, yet H.R. 40 uh, is still uh, uh, not the subject of, of conversation in the way that it should be. Do you think that there is some hope with the current administration, and we're looking at this both domestically and globally, to maybe address the issue of reparations in a more comprehensive way, whether it's passing John Conyers H.R. 40 or whether it's something else that might lead the nation to a greater sense of its moral responsibility. So I'll, I'll jump in this time first and then.